I pray that the Lord uses these messages to bring people to a saving faith in Him. Because that is the aim of my preaching, to encourage the saints. Also, to bring sinners to repentance in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm sure that this uh, parable is probably familiar to you if you, you've heard it talked about before or alluded to about the ten virgins, the five wise, and the five uh, foolish. So we will see why the ones who were wise were called wise and the ones who were foolish are foolish. And we want to be of the wise virgins. And we will see how that looks. So this is Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13, and this is the word of the Lord. Says, then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. While the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight, a cry was heard. Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Then all the virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No. Lest there should not be enough for us and you. But go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went out to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you neither know the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Amen. This parable is told during the, uh, what is commonly called the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus gave his final discourse on the Mount of Olives. And that uh, begins at uh, Matthew 24 uh, down through the end of the 25th chapter. And this is where Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives. And it is the fifth of five discourses in Matthew's Gospel. One of the discourses is the Sermon on the Mount. That's a, a discourse uh, in Matthew's Gospel. So there were five different uh, discourses in uh, Matthew's Gospel. And this parable is then the final discourse. And this parable is addressed to the disciples as opposed to the religious leaders of the last few parables that we read. This one is to the disciples. It's addressed to his followers. And it teaches them about the present and future uh, with uh, eschatological implications. When we hear the word eschatological, it comes from the word uh, the Greek word eschaton, which is where they get the word eschatology, meaning end times or the end times. That's what we mean by the word uh, eschatology, the study of the end times, you know, when Christ comes back and some events that happen in, in, uh, in the revelation of Jesus Christ, Matthew in the Bible. When we think about eschatology, we think about end times. So this parable right here, Jesus is teaching them about the time that he is going to come back. Now, some points of interpretation in this parable, we always have to define uh, who means what, or what means what, or what means who in these parables. And in this parable, uh, the bridegroom is Christ. Uh, the ten virgins represent the church, or the 
professors of Christianity in general. Uh, virginity signifies uh, Christianity as separate from the world and as a restraint from all worldly contamination. That's what J.P. Lang said in his, his commentary. The oil represents the concept of being prepared. You know, I, I, I came up in the holiness church and, and you know, they said the oil represented the Holy Ghost. You know, those who have the Holy Ghost enter in and those who don't have the Holy Ghost don't enter in. That's that's what we were taught in the, in the holiness church, that the oil represented the Holy Ghost or the, or the Holy Spirit, but that's not uh, a proper interpretation of that. So, uh, because every believer is spirit-filled. So. But anyway, the oil represents the concept of being prepared. And the bridegroom's tarrying or waiting signifies Christ delaying to come to judgment. Now, the bridegroom waiting, as we see here in this uh, passage, that's at the end of verse 5, the bridegroom was delayed. So that represents Christ delaying coming, delaying to come to judgment. And the interpretation of the parable, and you probably figured it out, is in the very uh, is, is in verse thirteen, where it says, "Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming." That is the interpretation of the parable. The central point of this parable, there's there's one main central point, okay, of this parable, is that disciples must be watching correctly in order to be properly prepared to go with the Son of Man when he comes. There's two ways of watching. There's an incorrect way and there's a correct way. We're going to look at both of those. Because the, the watching and waiting is not like we're sitting down twiddling our thumbs waiting on Jesus to come back. That's that's the incorrect way of, of watching and waiting. You know, trying to hold time, so to speak. There's a right and a wrong way. The big idea, every person is responsible for being ready for Christ's return. Every single person is responsible for being ready. The first thing that we have to get out the way is that Christ is coming back. Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. There's going to be a second coming of Christ. Paul speaks about it as much to the Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians, the fourth chapter, because there were questions that the Thessalonians had about Christ coming back, whether he's coming back or not. Paul said, in a uh, twinkling of an eye, he's going to crack the sky and every eye will behold him. When Christ comes back, guess what? Everybody's going to know. Everybody's going to see him when he comes back. And it's going to be terror for those who are not in the earth. And it's going to be a joy for the saints. And we'll get into that in our sermon. But he is coming back. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. So we're going to look at, I think, four principles here in our passage in short. The first principle is that Christ's second coming will find both the wise and the foolish in his church. Okay? He will find both the wise and the foolish in his church. Because remember, the ten virgins represent the church. And the professors of Christianity in general. So in Christ's church resides both the wise and the foolish. He said at the beginning of the parable, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins, five of them wise and five foolish. In the church resides the wise and the foolish. It resides the secured and the deceived. It resides the wheat and the tares. You know, we did the parable of the wheat and the tares. They grow up what? Together. And at the end, they will be separated. The tares will be thrown into the fire to be consumed, which represents final judgment. 
We are those who are in Christ, those who are part of the true church. So in this parable, we see the wise virgins and the ones who are foolish. They are deceived. The church has those who are secure, those who are truly kept by God, and those who are self-deceived and think that they are in Christ. You have two converts and you have false converts within every church or within the church universal, not necessarily in every individual con congregation, but in every church in the church general, church universal. You have true converts and you have the false. You have those who profess Christ, but in works they deny him. The life doesn't show the life of a Christian. The life is not marked by turning away from sin. Their affections are still the same as they've always been. Their affections for Christ haven't become warmer. Their love for God and his word and, and his people has not grown warmer, but it's grown cold. How do you know a person is truly in Christ? Because their affections and their desires are different. They're not the same. Their affections for Christ are sweeter. Their affections for the church and for the bride of Christ are sweeter. Their desire for the word is greater. Their affections go from have to to want to. Instead of saying, I have to go to church, their affections say what? I want to go to church. I want to be with the saints. I want to hear the preaching of the word. I want to be in fellowship. Not, I have to. Their affections, their desires are rightly ordered toward God and rightly oriented toward God and Christ. Those are the true converts. Those are the, the wise. The foolish are those who try to fake it until they make it. But they'll never make it because they're faking it. Those are the foolish. Those are the self-deceived. They try to conjure up their emotions for Christ and for the church, but it's just not there. It's like running an empty errand. And so we see that Christ's second coming will find both of these types of people in his church. The church of God has always been filled with these two types, the wise and the foolish. So there's no surprise that we find this truth in this parable, the foolish and the wise. But the question is, what made them foolish and what made them wise? Number one, the foolish took their lamps but no oil with them. They were not prepared. It says in verse 2, five were wise, five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took what? No oil with them. That's, that's what made them foolish. They were not prepared. In the case of the foolish virgins, the taking of the lamps is everything. And these weren't necessarily lamps as much as they were torches uh, that they that they carry. You know, like you, you see the torch in the movie with that little uh, something wrapped around a stick or a pole, and they and they dipped it into oil to keep the fire going. That's that's pretty much what it was. It wasn't like actual lamps or. Or lanterns. You know, they you have to understand in antiquity they didn't have lights. They didn't have indoor lighting, they didn't have street lights lining the, the the dusty roads. You know, they had to use oil or and lamps and sticks with power and whatever on the end of them had to dip them into, into oil to, to keep them lighting. So that's oil was a very precious commodity at that time. So these Foolish virgins were not prepared. They were just like fools. Right? Now, do you know the Greek word for foolish is moros, M-O-R-O-S? 
It means dull, flat, dull in understanding, nonsensical. That's what the word foolish means. Now, moros may sound familiar. Moros is the Greek word for moron. It is. So the Greek construction of verse 3, looking at verse 3 in your Bible, the Greek construction reads this. Be indeed foolish or stupid having taken the lamps did not take with them oil. They were indeed foolish. They were indeed stupid. They were indeed moronic. By the foolish, we mean those who are among the unwakened. This is what Matthew Poole says. He says, by the foolish, we mean those among the unwakened, the careless, Christless professors who are so foolish as to seek the gain of the world rather than their own souls. We talk about that all the time. What profit, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world? To gain the world's goods, to gain the world's acclaim, but at the expense of his soul. What will a man give in exchange for his soul? For a woman give in exchange for her soul? That's what the foolish person does. They're not prepared. Why? Because they are seeking the gain of the world rather than their own souls, not realizing that one day they're going to have to stand before God and give an account for their souls. Young people, no matter how old you are, no matter how young you are, guess what? You got to give an account to God one day. Those of us who are older, we got to give an account to God one day. We're, we're a little bit closer. But each day is a day closer to that day, whether you're you're 13 or you're 12 or you're 5 or you're 4 or whether you're 65 or 66 years old. Each day is a day closer to that day. And the question is, are we going to be ready? So we see what the foolish did. What did the wise do? The wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. They were prepared. Verse 4, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. The Greek construction for the wise is as follows. The, on the other hand, intelligent or prudent took oil among the vessels or the flasks with the lamps on them. So the wise were what? They were intelligent. They were prudent. Prudent means wise. They took the oil with them. They were prepared. Those who are prepared are wise. By the wise are meant the wise unto salvation. Robert Hawkins Puritan said that when, when, when the scripture is speaking of uh, the wise, it's talking about those who are wise unto salvation as opposed to the foolish who are self-deceived about their salvation. So we think about the wise virgins being those who are wise unto salvation. The Bible says five of them were wise and five were foolish. So this signifies the difference of professors of faith. Some have lamps, make a profession, but have no truth of grace. Others have the root of the matter in them, a true faith in love, which feeds men's professions. Again, this is every single person in the church. Some have lamps, but they have no truth of grace. They appear to have light, but they don't. They appear to be wise, but they're not. Why? Because they're not there. They're self-deceived. But the wise are those who do. It leads to my second principle. That Christ's second coming will take many unawares. Unawares means unawares. <laughs> that degree word for unawares is unaware. Off guard. So it says here, verse 5, while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. 
So look at verse 6. But at what? Midnight. That means something. As the bridegroom was delayed, but at midnight. Both the wise and the foolish slept and slumbered. Both of them did. But this signified the lack of sense of urgency in their waiting. They went on about their affairs, not anticipating bridegroom's return. So them slumbering and sleeping the leaders, they actually went to sleep and then they went about their affairs and going about their day doing what they were doing. Have you ever been to a wedding before where the door was shut on you and you couldn't go in? Probably no, right? You ever been late for a wedding before? It's kind of embarrassing, but you know, you come in, everybody on you looking back at you coming through the door. Uh, but in antiquity, if you were late for a wedding, that door should that was it. It was a, it was an embarrassment to be late for a wedding in in those days. Everyone wanted to get there on time or early. For that door to be shut was an embarrassment. But so the virgin sleeping meant that they were going about their affairs and not anticipating the bridegroom's return. But without warning, that's why it says. And at midnight, in some translations say, but at midnight. So all of a sudden, without warning, the call went out to meet the bridegroom. And the virgins trimmed their lamps. Now, to trim their lamps meant to decorate them or to uh, put them in order. They were putting themselves in proper order to meet the bridegroom. They didn't just hastily go in, though. They made sure that they trimmed their Lamps. They arose, verse 7, and trimmed their lamps. The foolish virgins, being already dead in their trespasses, and that's who they represented. They represent those who were dead in their trespasses and sins. They could not help but to not have oil in their lamps. Why? Because they were too ignorant. They were too foolish in their spiritual condition. They were too foolish to be concerned about the condition of their souls. They were too foolish to realize that one day they were going to have to be ready. That is the condition of those who are without Christ. They're too foolish. They're too ignorant to realize that they need to be ready when Christ comes back. But again, they were foolish. They were moronic. They could not help but to not have oil for their lamps. But the wise virgins, on the other hand, they were spiritually alive and prepared for this day when the bridegroom arrived. They were ready for his arrival. They were not ignorant and aloof. They were made wise unto salvation, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3 and 15 about the Word of God. The Word of God makes us wise unto salvation. So the wise were ready, but the foolish were not. And they proved their foolishness by not being ready. In the end, when Christ comes, those who are not ready when he comes back, guess what? They will prove their foolishness by not being ready. They will prove that they're fools. They will prove that they never were because they were not ready. But the wise, they were ready. They were spiritually alive and they were prepared for this day. So the question to you is this. Are you ready for that day when Christ comes back? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. How do you know you're ready? How do you know you're not of the wise or of the foolish? How do you know? Are you ready? When Christ comes back right now, will you be received by him or will you be rejected by him? There won't be a time to bargain and and quote, get your house in order at that time. It's too late. Right now, the Bible says, now is the day of salvation. Now is the day of salvation. It's not later. It's now. 
are you ready when he comes back? The bridegroom's catching them off guard. Christ's second coming is going to take many people unaware. They're not going to be ready. They're not going to be ready. That's what this signifies right here. And at midnight, midnight, middle of the night, a cry was heard. Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. The wise were ready. But look what the foolish said. Give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. Ha! Nope. <laughs> you on your own. What did the wise say to them? No. Why? Because we give you some, we're not going to have enough for ourselves. And we'll talk about that. That's our next principle here. Christ's second coming will be too late for me. It will be too late for me. The foolish virgins who are the false converts, the hypocrites, the false professors, they realize when it's too late that they were lost in their sins. That is a dreadful reality that will befall many when Christ returns. And also, thinking it was someone else's responsibility for their soul, they asked the wise virgin for some of their oil. Guess what? Each of us is going to be responsible for our no one else is. All of us are going to have to stand individually and give an account for God. That's what I can't give an account for you. You can't give an account. I can't. I can't vouch for my children or my grandchildren or my mom or my siblings or my best friends or my coworkers. I can't put in a good word for anybody. Guess what? When you stand before God and comes back, it's going to be you and Him. You can't live out the faith of your mama or your grandmama or your grandparents or your brother or your sister or your best friend. You cannot live off of their faith. You have to have faith for yourself. I learned this growing up, going to church. I was going to church, but I wasn't saved. If I died as a teenager, I would have died in my sins. Thank God for his mercy that he didn't take me out, that my day wasn't appointed at that time. Because I was 16 or 17 out there doing stupid stuff and living in rebellion against God. Yeah, I was going, I was an usher. I was singing in the youth choir. I was going to vacation Bible school. I was sitting on the fourth row on the corner with my aunt Ella sitting next to me. And pinching me if I wasn't paying attention. They gave me a dollar to put in the offering every Sunday. They gave me a piece of peppermint if I did good. I did all that. But I was just as lost as I could be. I was among the foolish. And if I died that day, those days, my aunt, my great aunts couldn't vouch for me before God. I would have to stand before God for myself and give an account for myself. That is going to be all of us. These wise, these foolish virgins thought that it was the wise virgin's responsibility to give them more. No, it was not. They thought, guess what? They wouldn't have any oil then. The foolish virgins late discerning that their lamps were out that they wanted oil lets us know that hypocrites and fake professors will too late know that professions without a root of faith and true regeneration will serve them in no way in the end. That's what Matthew Poole said. Let me read that again. The foolish virgins late discerning that their lamps were out and that they wanted oil lets us know that hypocrites and false professors of faith will too late know that profession without a root of faith and true regeneration will serve them nothing in the end. In other words, some people are going to find out when it's too late that they were not saved. They thought they had no roots of faith 
They had no true regeneration, no true change of heart, no true change of, 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 of lifestyle, change of affections to God. It wasn't there. And that's what be tragic when they find out when it's too late. When Christ comes back, friend, it's, it's, that's it. It's, it's too late. It's too late. Many people think that, oh, I'll make a deathbed confession. I have time. Many people are self-proceeding to thinking that, well, you know, they're 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 borrowing the term. They don't borrow time. They think, oh yeah, I'll do it when I'm a little older. I'm not ready right now, you know. But each they don't realize that each day that they go by, their heart is getting harder and harder and harder. And they think they're gonna make a deathbed confession. They don't know how they're growing up. They need to become a vegetable. They need to be on a ventilator. They need to be in a coma. They may die instantly in a tragic car accident. They don't know. But people believe the lie that they have time. Because you're young, you got time. No, you don't. Because you're old, you still got a little time. No, you don't. Don't believe that lie because it's not true. The wise virgins, or the foolish virgins, told the ignorant, the wise virgins, proving their wisdom, they rejected the pleas of the foolish. With a strong, not so. Verse 9, no. Lest there should not be enough for us and you. But go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. The wise knows that this is a personal responsibility issue. They told the foolish virgin not so. They rejected them at the rim. Now, as a consequence of not being ready, the foolish virgins face a dreadful and final shutting out of the wedding when the door was shut. It says in verse 10, while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready, listen to those words, those who were ready, they did what? They went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. It was shut. And they had insult to injury when they asked the bridegroom to open the door for them. He replied, What? I don't know you. Or, a worse way of putting it, I do not acknowledge you as thine. Those words are reminiscent of, of Christ on the day of judgment in Matthew 7. Where he will say, I never knew you, depart from me. Those are the three most, John MacArthur said, and I agree with him, those are three of the most terrifying words in all of the English language. I, I mean, depart from me. Depart from me. I don't know who you are. A door serves as two functions. A door serves to keep something in or keep something out. That's what a door does. Two functions. To keep something in or to keep something out. The door of salvation is the same way. When Christ comes back, that door of salvation is shut. No one else can come in that door. It is closed shut. The Lord knows those who are his. He knows those who are his. And he will say to those who are not his, I never knew you. I don't know you. I don't know who you are. You may think you know me, but I don't know you. 
And that's how that door is going to be shut. And that's what happened here at this wedding. Now, the door being shut is also a picture of the final judgment. Where some will enter in and others will be shut out. And again, I said a door serves two functions to allow entry and to deny entry. And it will be like that at the final day when Christ comes back. And when he comes back again, the door will not be opened. And that means that judgment is final and complete. It's final. It's shut. It's done. It's over. It's nothing you can do about it. You can bang on a proverbial door all you want to, asking for entrance, but guess what? You're not going to be let in. You're not going to be let in. Which leads to our last principle here. Christ's second coming will be a reward for those who are ready. We praise the Lord for that. It says here, and those who were ready went in with him, the bridegroom, to the marriage feast. That's what they did. Verse 10. Those who were ready went in with him. The redeemed will participate in the great marriage feast with the bridegroom, who is Christ. And there will be a great day of rejoicing. When we as believers, those of us who are in Christ, when that door is shut and we're in that great wedding, that great feast, we're going to be feasting with our Savior. Amen. Amen. We're going to be feasting with Christ. We want to be thinking about those who were shut out, those who was on the other side of it. We're not going to be thinking about them. We're going to be in the presence with the Lord, with Christ. We're going to be united with our Savior, our Lord, the bridegroom. And guess what? We're going to have a great feast with him. Amen. And because of this, we have to endeavor, as Christ said here in verse 13, to watch. Why? Because we do not know the day nor the hour. Again, Paul spoke extensively about the second coming of Christ in 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 4, beginning around verse 13 through chapter 5, around verse 11. He instructs the Christ, or he instructs the church rather, on how to live in light of Christ's return in 2 Thessalonians 3. This is what Paul says here, 2 Thessalonians 3. He warns us against idleness. He says, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you. He says in verse 6 of 2 Thessalonians 3, but we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he has received us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us for we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil day and night, that we might not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. So what is Paul saying? Until Christ comes back, work. Don't be idle. Don't sit around doing nothing. Don't waste your time. Don't waste your life doing frivolous and stupid things that don't account for anything. Rather, get to work. Do stuff. Be productive. Don't be disorderly. That's what he says. He says, we were not disorderly among you. We did not eat anyone's bread free of charge, but we worked with labor and toil. We worked. We did things. We were productive. That's what we ought to do until Christ comes back. We ought to get to work. We ought to be productive. We ought to be Producers and not consumers, not always consuming things, but actually doing things to God's glory. That's what God called us to do. Not to do as some people do. I don't think anyone has this problem. Sit around and play video games all day, watch TikTok, or get on social media all day, just wasting your life. 
or watching television, watching uh, the garbage that's on television, or just listening to garbage music all day. That's not what he called us to. He called us to be productive, to, to make our life count, to do things to his glory. That is what Paul is telling the church, a warning against idleness. He says here in verse 10 of 2 Thessalonians 3, For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, If anyone would not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who are among you, uh, walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such we command and exhort to our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. This is how we should live in light of Christ's plan. We are to be productive. We are to produce. We are to be active. Actively doing things for God's glory. I can't sit around if I didn't work, I would drive myself crazy. I'm not a lazy bum just like laying around doing nothing. I'm not like that. I, I can't do it. I won't be able to stand myself. Even if you're retired, there are things you can do. You, you see a lot of retired people going back to work. You see a lot of retired people doing work, working in the garden, in the home, going out and helping and serving other people. The, the myth that you know, the American dream is to retire and go live on the beach and sip out of drinks that have a little umbrella sticking out the top of it. That's the good life. That's the American good life, right? Just go somewhere, you know, um, the, the old tag that you say, retired, no bills, no worries. You always have worries. <laughs> Even when you retire. Still have words. There's no such thing as a word free life. But retirement is not about idleness. Even when you are working. It doesn't mean that you don't have rest time. But you work in order to do what? Rest. You work in order to have that vacation. You work in order to be able to retire. But even in retirement, you're still serving the Lord in what you're doing. Don't believe the lie that we're supposed to retire and do nothing. Let our life just waste away. Most people who do that, guess what? They don't live that long. They retire, just stop doing things, and they say, you know, your health just goes. They say, you know, three, four years later, they kick the bucket because they believe the lie. But Paul tells us here, the way we get ready is by doing, by being ready. What are the implications of this passage? Don't waste your life. You can't give back the time that you wasted. Young people, don't waste your life. Older saints, don't waste your life. You can't get this time back. We are to redeem the time. The Bible tells us that. Paul tells us that in, I think, Ephesians 5. Redeem the time for the day of evil. Redeem your time. In other words, make the most of your time. Don't waste your time in, in frivolous, empty pursuits that are not going to lead you to anything or anywhere. Many people do that. They waste their life. Then they say, you know, they're 30 years old. What are you doing with your life? I don't know. I see a lot of former students. A lot of them. What you doing, man? Gunning. So you're doing something? Are you a parent? Do you, you have a job? Or, you know, I'm going to say I'm trying to stay out of the way. No way to try to stay out of jail. That's not a way to live. Your life that bad that you got to not do stuff to get in jail. Because they're doing what? They're wasting their life. They're not doing things that produce, they're not doing things to God's glory. They're doing things rather that destroy instead of building up. And I'm going to tell you something. Before you know it, girls, guys, you're going to be 25 years old. 
Before you know it, I'm going to be seven if the Lord tarries. When I was your age, I thought 50 was old. And here I am, 51 today. I thought being 50 was like an old fogey. I thought my dad was old. He was only 23 years old. I thought my dad was an old man. Here I am, 51 years old. When I was 15, 16 years old, I thought 50 was old and ancient, but here I am. It will come. And you don't look back at your life and say, man, I wasted a lot of time. It will happen. Don't waste your life. Redeem the time. Take advantage of the time that God has given you. Steward it to his glory. You have 168 hours a week. Everybody. Don't waste your time. God, did, God gave us three things to be stewards over. Time. Talent, meaning our gifts to serve other people, not just our needs. And treasures, the, 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 the finances, the, the, the possessions that we we have and gain and acquire. We have stewardship of all three of those things. The clothes you wear is a stewardship issue. How you take care of your house or your room or how you work on your job is a stewardship issue. What you do when you get paid is a stewardship issue. If you got gifts and talents, all of you do, God has given everyone gifts and talents. What are you doing with it? Are you using it or are you wasting it? And no, watching videos and posting stuff to social media is not a talent. I can do that and I don't do it good. <laughs> That's not a talent. Going and videoing yourself, jumping off a roof and breaking both of, both of your ankles is not a talent. That's stupidity. But you got people who do that to get social media clout. Do all these stupid challenges. It's a challenge I saw about cooking chicken with NyQuil. Mm. How stupid can you be to cook chicken with medicine? But you got people that were doing that because they saw it on a stupid TikTok video. I'm sorry. I hate TikTok. I only have TikTok. I think it's one of the most stupid uh, <laughs> uh, inventions ever, and I just do. Now I apologize for saying that. A lot of bad stuff on there. But Cooking chicken with NyQuil as a challenge? Y'all know people probably know better than me all the different challenges on TikTok that people have done to end up messing themselves up. Snorting cinnamon. They're trying to eat cinnamon. Cinnamon gets clogged up until you, you can choke off that stuff. But you had so many different things on there. Why? Because people are not redeeming their time. They're wasting their life doing frivolous things for attention. But for Christians, we're called to be better stewards. Until Christ comes back, we're called to be better stewards of our time, better stewards of our talent, better stewards of our treasures, our possessions, our money. We're called to be better. And to not just waste it away doing those silly things. And it's not that those things are wrong in and of themselves. It's how much time you commit to them, how much energy you're dedicating to it. I always say one indication if you got your iPhone when that screen time for it pops up on Sunday. How many average hours does it say you spent on your phone? And then you can look at, you can break it down by apps, music, you know, social media, whatever case you can you can break down that screen time. You say, man, how much time am I spending on uh, social media or, or, or on this app or that app? If it's like 12 hours a day. I mean, you only got 24 hours a day. You're supposed to be asleep for eight of them. Supposed to be. Maybe just spending <laughs> half a day like this. I still go on with them thumbs. You just <laughs> swipe, swipe, swipe. Go on, boy.
Done. Endure it. Hours upon hours upon hours. Redeem your time. Don't waste your life. Amen. Amen. To the wise, be on watch and persevere in following the Lord. Don't be weary in doing good. Paul told those same Thessalonians here to not be weary in doing good. He says, but as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. Persevere in following the Lord. There's great reward in there for us. We're going to receive rewards in there based on the work that we've done for the Lord in the Lord's name. So he does come back and we are ready. Guess what? We're going to receive rewards. So don't think that what you're doing for the Lord and the Lord's service is, is worth nothing because it is worth everything. And to the foolish, the high morality and false profession will get you no entrance into the way. If you're not truly saved, if you're not truly in Christ, then guess what? You're going to be shut out. It's going to be silent. And it's going to be a terrible day. That's why we pray for unbelievers. We pray for unbelieving family members, friends, loved ones, co-workers. Because, man, when that door is shut, just like it was in this parable, that's it. It's silent. It's over. It's done. So let us endeavor to be among the wise and not the foolish. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. And we're going to do our, uh, I didn't forget about the community. We're going to do it after uh, do our prayer before we do our benediction. Lord, thank you for your word. And Lord, I'm praying for all of us this morning that we are among the wise that we will be ready when you come back. That we have a sense of urgency that you are coming back. That we know that we always have that in mind. Not, not as a way to be terrified, Lord, but as a way of being confident and knowing that you're coming back. And that when you do come back, Father, you will find us ready. Lord, help us to be like the wise and not the foolish, the ignorant, the unlearned, thinking that it is someone else's responsibility to save us or to get us saved. Lord, no, it is our responsibility to repent and respond to the hearing and the preaching of the gospel. We all have to give individual accounts for our service before you. Father, it is my prayer that you use this message to convict those who are the foolish, convict them of their sins, Father, and use your word by your spirit to turn their hearts to you in repentance, to turn away from a life of sin to a life that is ordered after you, a life that has new affections, Life which you are a new creation. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. 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 Okay, we'll do our communion right quick and then.